0: What happened on Friday in Lyon Sea, next door to End, was truly horrendous and a big shock to everybody. A shock to everybody involved in politics and current affairs, a shock to the country. Uh, Sir David Amos, somebody that I knew, not well, but I knew, and met many times and was just the most jolly, happy man that loved being a Member of Parliament, uh, believed in his causes passionately, uh, believed in his constituency... Uh, Not somebody that ever wanted to climb the greasy pole of politics. He was happy being a backbencher. In a way, he's sort of redolent of the old days of politics when people went into it, almost as if they wanted to give more back to politics than they wanted to take out of it. So what happened to him was horrendous. It was a political assassination. That's not a word that anybody else is using, but that's the truth of what happened. I'm concerned that some people are drawing the wrong conclusion. But before I get to that, let's listen to Boris Johnson, Prime Minister in the House of Commons, paying tribute
1: today. Sir David was taken from us in a contemptible act of violence, striking at the core of what it is to be a member of this House and violating the sanctity both of the church in which he was killed and the constituency surgery that is so essential to our representative democracy. But we will not allow the manner of Sir David's death in any way to detract from his accomplishments as a politician or as a human being. Because Sir David was a patriot who believed passionately in this country, in its people, in its future. He was also one of the nicest, kindest, and most gentle individuals ever to grace these benches. As it is only a short time since Sir David last put that very case to me in this chamber, I am happy to announce that Her Majesty has agreed that End will be accorded the city status it so clearly deserves.
0: Well, that's one piece of good news because David Amos had campaigned for South End to have city status, and that will now posthumously happen in his honour. But what's disturbed me ever since Friday is the analysis. We're told by a variety of media commentators, journalists, and indeed members of Parliament that this is all because of the tough, aggressive narrative that exists within politics. We're being urged to move towards a gentler, kinder, Hyperpolitics indeed, the Mayor of London Sadiq Khan actually tweeted i 'm deeply saddened by the tragic news that Sir David has passed away no Sadiq Khan this is not a ninety eight year old d day veteran that died in his sleep. This is somebody that was brutally assaulted, stabbed seventeen times, and died directly as a result of it and we 're all dancing around handbags here without anybody really wanting to call it what it is. This was an act of Islamic terrorism. At least that's what the police say they're investigating. And the prime suspect in this case is somebody who was sent to the PREVENT programme six years ago uh, because a teacher had, had really thought this man could become a serious jihadi. I've been astonished by two things out of all of this. The first is that those that go through the PREVENT programme, their details and data are not passed on to the security services, are not passed on to the police for databases. And, yes, I know there are human rights objections to individuals' names being passed on to those databases. Well, what about the human rights of David Amos and his family? And the other debate that fascinates me is how do we manage to have Members of Parliament continuing to be public-facing, continuing to go on meeting their constituents, because this is the third attack in 20 years that has happened in an MP's surgery. I've heard ludicrous ideas, such as police officers, should stand outside when MPs have surgeries. We don't have the slack in the police force. My suggestion is there are hundreds of people who fought in Iraq, who fought in Afghanistan, who are used to dealing with terrorist threats, also used to dealing with the civilian public. And I think they could be trained. I do not think any MP from now on should go out at a pre-arranged public event, whether it's in a street or in a surgery, without some level of security. And I say that as somebody that lived this life for seven or eight years. I was surrounded by private security for those years. And even then... People did break through the crowd and throw things at me or break eggs over my head or whatever it was. But one thing for certain, with private security, I would never have been stabbed 17 times. Once, possibly, but certainly not 17 times. So that's what I want to see. But why are we not calling this out for what it really is? This is an act of Islamic terrorism. And the problem is... We can't just write this off as being one extremist nut job, because this is an ideology that has roots in this country. Even if the adherents of it are just a few thousand, it's enough to worry us and the whole democratic process. We need to have a proper, honest debate. Well, joining me to begin with to discuss this is Dr. Haj, Taj Haji, director of the Oxford Institute for British Islam, and a prominent liberal Muslim. Taj, thank you very much indeed for joining us. I, I've i been astonished by the way people have danced around this. I mean, let's be frank, and OK, we've not had the court case yet, but we can believe what the police say and we can see the evidence. This is somebody in your religion who clearly hates democracy and Western values. And my concern is, you know, that... Awful man that killed Joe Cox a few years ago. There may be a few people like him out there, but we know there aren't very many. My concern is how many people like this are there out there within the British Muslim community that have been radicalised, if I can ask you that question.
2: Yeah, I believe there's quite, quite a few. But the point, I, firstly, I want to make is that uh, myself and all thinking Muslims want to extend our condolences to Sir, Sir David's uh, brutal killing. Uh, a horrific uh, uh, murder, as you say, it's not a passing away. Can, can, can I
0: just say, I was delighted to see, I was delighted to see that the mosques and the representatives of the Muslim faith in Essex and Southend mm-hmm. were there within hours, weren't they? Absolutely. And yeah. I was delighted to see that.
2: I think that's important, but I think the, the big question here is, how do we in Britain nurture these people that become fanatic and intolerant? The answer is very clear. It's theology, theology, theology. Unless Muslims and non-Muslims understand what is populist Islam, what is orthodox Islam, we will never get to the root of the problem. I believe that we're going to have more and more of these jihadis and militants unless we deal with this. So there are three toxic elements to the theology of orthodox Islam. So what are these three? Give me some time, if you may. Firstly, it's it's a toxic trio. It's a toxic triumvirate. So what's the first one? that creates this type of a narrative. The first is the Hadith. The supposed alleged sayings of the Prophet Muhammad written 300 years after his death and has been invented and uh, this type of Chinese whispers. That's the hugest component of it because that's where you get jihadi narratives. That's where you get the idea that if you kill someone, you'll have 72 virgins mm. uh, uh, in the afterlife. It's not in the Quran. It's these alleged reputed sayings of Muhammad. That's number one. Number two is the Sharia and Sharia is not divine law. Sharia is medieval opinion masquerading as divine law. So these are the medieval theologians that came to understand Islam and they projected that as God's law. It's not God's law, it is their opinions and their prejudices. So that's number two. And the third of the toxic trio is fatwas. The most egregious one, of course, we all know is uh, Salman Rushdie's one. But fatwa is just an individual opinion of a one cleric. It is not, uh, it has no Quranic uh, justification. And so when we have an Islam that is projecting itself as uh, uh, authentic and original, it's not. It is the absolute juxtaposition of it. The, the Islam of the clergy, the Islam of populist Islam, uh, uh, of populist faith is a perversity of what Islam teaches. Quranic I, Islam, Quranic I, Islam, Tash, let me just finish here.
0: Taj, I believe every word, that you've just said, and you've said it with great sincerity, and I can see that you believe this and you mean this. Isn't the problem here, though, that, you know... I mean, for example, the Catholic Church has a pope. You can like the pope, you can dislike the pope, you can see him as being too conservative, being too liberal, but the church has a head of the church, and, and he, for his period in office, gives the lead to that church. Isn't one of the problems with Islam that no such structure exists.
2: Well, that's both a benefit and a bane. And, for example, when we have a Pope and he's corrupt, like during the time of the Reformation and so forth, what do we do then? But but, but here's the problem. You're giving me your interpretation.
0: (laughs) No, no. And and I fully accept... No, no. No, I fully accept... (laughs) I fully accept that many of the things that people purport to be from the Quran are interpretations that came later. But without any head of the religion, it's very difficult. Does the religion need
2: some sort of reformation? Yes, in fact, I'm coming to that if you let me. All right, all right, I will, I will. Okay, so the, the, the point is the Quran warns Muslims not to make the mistakes of Jews and Christians. And what mistake did the Jews and Christians make? They put their rabbis and their monks and bishops and made them into little gods. So the Quran warns people, we do not want little gods, the clergy people. And so it says that the book is sufficient, the book is complete, it's detailed, you don't, nothing has been left out. 6,236 verses. When you add this, uh, that's all the, the yep. Quran is. When, when you add the so-called hadith and the sharia and the fatwas, is over 2.4 million, and that's where the issue comes. Muslims have to have a rational faith, a faith that is uh, 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 reformist, and a faith that is uh, 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 relevant. We in Britain need an Islam that's the three E's. It has to be erudite, it has to be egalitarian, and it has to be enlightened. And that is what this Islam that Who we want to... Who is going to lead that? Well, firstly, any movement starts off small. I'm originally from South Africa. In 1958, when Sweden decided to boycott South Africa because of anti-apartheid, they were all sort of laughed at. And yet, 30 years later, the sanctions worked. So movements take a, a while. But uh, right now, in fact, we have the, the wonderful thing called Internet. The, the Muslim clergy well, no longer... Well, Internet can be good and bad. Yeah, right, But at least it no longer has a monopoly of interpretation by the clergy. And so, for example, the way that we need to fix this problem that happened in South End and many other incidents is a three-pronged strategy. That's what I'm... Uh, uh, but, but, but to be frank,
0: you're pessimistic in the short term.
2: N- yes, but I'm not pessimistic. I'm, uh, I'm actually hopeful that in the end we will come there. But let, let me talk about this three-pronged strategy. Very briefly. OK. F- firstly, we need to tackle the three M's. What are the three M's? It's the mosque. Is the mullahs and the madrasas, The mosque, for example, f- over 50% of the mosques in this country are ultra-conservative. diobandi, Tablighi and so forth. How come that the most prestigious mosque in this country, the Regent Park Mosque, is, on, is controlled by the Saudis? The director reports to the Saudi king.
0: But, but we've learned that this man was inspired by Anjam Chowdhury.
2: Yes, yeah, so, we, so the, the, the second M, mullahs. Now, so Anjam Chowdhury is a type of mullah, right? Yeah. So these people need to be identified and targeted. And we need to go after the, so to speak, the Anjum charges of the world. And they're easy to find. You have about 2,000, 3,000 mosques in this country. It's easy to do it. I could do it if I'm given the the support for that. And the third M is the madrasas. The madrasas are children being indoctrinated and conditioned into a perverse type of Islam, of them and us. Now, when we have them and us, how can we have security and safety in our society? I'm going to say to you, Taj Haji, thank you for coming on and
0: making your arguments, but I think there's a lot of work to do uh, within your religion to get this straight. Absolutely. And, and, but I thank you for what you've had to say, and I thank, I thank all of those people from the Islamic faith in Essex and from the mosques who turned up and paid homage to uh, Sir David Amos at the scene of his massacre. It was a very, very good thing, and we need to see more of it. Well, moving the, the, the debate on, to what can we do to help protect MPs? Well, joining me now is Professor Michael Clark, Parliamentary Advisor on Terrorism and former Director-General of the Royal United Services Institute. Michael, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, there's been a lot of talk, uh, you know, one or two MPs suggesting that maybe, for now, they should only meet their constituents on Zoom. Uh, I feel that would be the most terrible surrender To terrorism. What can we do so that MPs, and I've given my ideas earlier, but so that MPs can go out and meet and engage with their constituents? Uh,
3: Well, the short answer is not very much um, if we're going to hold on to our democracy in the way that we want to practice it. I mean, there won't be any one size fits all solution because, after all, 650 MPs from all parts of the British Isles, some areas are much more vulnerable to terrorist incidents than others. Um, all MPs have different arrangements. They have different types of constituency office, different types of, of coming and going. And, I mean, you yourself, you know, you've lived under this sort of regime in a way, and I have to oh, a, yeah. a smaller yeah. extent. And, and, I mean, what you, what you learn and what you're told is uh, it, you've got to take responsibility for your personal safety, so don't get into a regular routine, you know, be vigilant. Uh, don't, don't make it easy for anybody to know where your vehicles are or whatever it might be. There's all sorts of things you can do, and there are some things, in, in, in more vulnerable cases or where MPs may think they're more vulnerable or where they are, um, uh, as were spokespeople, for particularly sensitive issues, then um, it may well be that local police, uh, constabulary need to you know, take their own measures, which they won't want to adv- announce in advance, uh, in order to just increase the level of security. I mean, I think the biggest problem is not that MPs will occasionally be targeted because, sadly... That is the nature of modern politics throughout the world, not just here. The the issue is is really that we don't want to immediately to create copycat uh, crimes. It's, you know, the next six months or a year is the most important time. So we don't want two or three more of these things
0: happening soon because of the publicity for this. I completely understand. I mean, Michael, here's the argument I'm making, right? You know, from 2012, 2013 onwards, it was impossible for me to go out and campaign without security because people would throw things or try and bash me over the head. And even with security, occasionally they got through, albeit very, very briefly. But because I had private security, did not stop me campaigning on the street, did not stop me attending market day, did not stop me going around the pubs, the shops, holding public events. I did it with security with me, and because they were there, I was able to do it. Is it not time to recognise that the biggest security risk is when you pre-advertise where you're going to be on a date at a time, which is why there have been three attacks on MP surgeries in the last 20 years. Yes, more- yeah, I mean, that, I, I, I take and that so, point absolutely, so, but remember... So why not? So why not? Why not? Given we have hundreds, thousands of people who fought in Iraq, who fought in Afghanistan, many of whom have not settled back into jobs, all of whom are very patriotic people. They've worked fighting terrorism. They've worked with civilian populations. Aren't they people we could train to help keep our democracy alive?
3: Well, firstly, I mean, you were a very special case because you're a very prominent national politician. I've often said, actually, that you were the most prominent politician in Britain in the last 10 years. And yet you've never been an MP because, you know, you represent something different in the way our democracy works. And good on you for doing that. Um, But the the issue of of having private security people around for all MPs or even a majority of MPs raises the possibility that we'll end up with a sort of a private militia. And the chances are that will cause it, it, The cure will be worse than the disease. It will cause too many problems, too many policing problems, and it could ve- easily get out of hand. So I think where there are individuals who may be regarded as more um, uh, more insecure than others, there are things that the formal police should be doing. I'm very I'm, I'm very wary of the idea of having as well too many private security people around. So you were a particular case. I understand yeah. that. But private security I mean, I mean, look, for a range of MPs would be a real problem, I think.
0: I mean, Michael, I was an MEP for 20 years as opposed to being an MP. You were? Yes, and yes, I led a political movement that was against the mainstream, and, and for all of those reasons, um, I yeah. was prominent. But, it, but if you think about it, I mean, David Amos, all right, you know, he had his strong views on abortion, the death penalty, other things. He was pro-Israel. But he was, he was not exactly a contentious figure, was he? But it's easy to see... If we analyse that Islamic terrorism is a problem that is here for the foreseeable future, not difficult to work out the MPs that are pro-Israel, not difficult to work out the MPs that are critical of, for example, halal meat production. This is not that hard, is it really, to protect those who could be most vulnerable to this problem.
3: Well, to, yes, to do that, we need to know much more in more detail, as you say, who is likely to be most vulnerable and then think about that. But we don't want a blanket solution that where the cure becomes worse than the disease. That's my point. All right. um, so I think we, we do have to think about this, but we've got to take it very we have to take it step by step. And remember, I mean, you know, you and I can guess what the motives for this attack were, but we don't know yet. We, you know, until there's some authoritative statements arising from the evidence, we've got to be very careful I think, about what we say we're going to do about it. And like you, I mean, I've been studying jihadist terror for the last 20 years, so I, you know, I've been through a lot of the, of the junk which these people look at, the, the awful stuff that they read, yeah. and it really does turn your stomach, some of it, to be honest. But we've got to be careful not to jump to conclusions until we've got some authoritative statements, I think.
0: Michael Clark, I understand that, but the police do say they are looking at a suspected Islamic terrorist case. Indeed. Thank you for coming on this evening and giving us your point of view. I still insist that MPs on public duties need to be protected. In a moment, we're going to be joined by Marc Francois, a very close friend of David Amos and a Conservative MP for neighbouring Raleigh and Wickford, and this will be the first time he's spoken publicly since those awful events on Friday. It really is time. It really is time for us to face the truth about what happened on Friday in Leon C. This is not about political discourse. Politicians have been rude about each other for centuries. This is, and the police say that's what they're investigating, this is Islamic terrorism. And yet Sadiq Khan and others appear to be incapable of facing up to it. Some audience reaction coming in. One on Twitter anonymously says... More UK people are killed by knife crimes and street violence than so-called Islamic terrorism, and MPs should do nothing. I couldn't disagree with that more. Three attacks in MP surgeries in 20 years. How much more do you want before we take some form of action? Kate on GB News says to me, she says to me, it's not a terrorist issue, it's an immigration issue. These crimes are only getting more frequently committed. We need to get tough. Well, uh, Kate, you know, uh, I mean, nobody, nobody who's been in politics in Parliament for the last 20 years would ever admit that. And Roy on GB View says, stopping MPs, meeting their constituents, is surrendering our democracy and letting the terrorists win. None of us want to do that. And I thought, you know, one or two MPs saying, for the moment... We should only meet our constituents on Zoom. That, to me, would be a terrible surrender uh, and not something we should even contemplate. MPs need to be able to meet their constituents. I'm very critical of the the first-past-the-post system. It's deeply out of date, but the one benefit it does have, it links a man or woman to that town straight constituency. And therefore, they need to be able, the voters, to hold them directly accountable, regardless... whether whether they voted for them in the election or not. And that's really, really important. And and honestly, I believe that with trained private security... And yes, of course, there's a cost. You know, freedom and democracy isn't... It it, it doesn't come for nothing. But I do believe that would make MPs much, much safer in going about their business. Now, last Thursday, it was the first Farage at Large. We were down in Port Talbot. Uh, We were there with Stephen Kinnock, the local MP. We were looking... At the steel industry, we were looking at energy costs, we were looking at the problems that exist in South Wales. Um, And this week, we're going to be in Folkestone in Kent. So there's no prizes for guessing uh, that the cross channel, the over 18,000 people that have crossed the channel so far this year, uh, is going to be a very main talking point. If you want to come, get in touch with us, GB News. Dot UK. Get in touch with us, apply for a ticket. Uh, you may get lucky. I don't know. I'm sure a lot of you will want to come and take part in that debate. But that's where we're going to be on Thursday in Folkestone, in Kent. We'll talk about all, you know, the main issues of the day. But clearly what has happened across the English Channel is going to be a major, major part of it. Now, talk about a what the Farage moment. I just could not believe this today. I have been railing against the EU army, railing against European military cooperation for about 20 years. And I thought with Brexit, maybe the argument was over. And yet I was astonished to see pictures last week of a group of royal engineers from Catterick, along with the military band from Catterick. injured... There we are. There's, there's a British military band And they're in Germany, working with German engineers, and this is a re-designation parade. It seems almost incredible, but there is to be a new amphibious group, a new amphibious battalion made up of British and German troops. I simply can't believe it. I thought... And I know Afghanistan has been difficult, but I thought we'd put our faith in NATO... Not in a rival EU military cooperation that wants to head towards being a European army. I am tomorrow morning going to write to Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, to ask him what the hell is happening. If this was a cooperation with the German army, that would be fine. But when the Ministry of Defence tells us it's a re designation parade, I've got a real problem. Now, language, of course, in this world of cancel culture is everything. The National Theatre of Scotland has stopped using the word spooky... Now, I'm not making this up. ..to describe shows after it was flagged up as a racial slur. Really? I didn't know that. The state-funded arts company has previously used the word to promote a production of A Christmas Carol back in 2016. The term has been dropped as part of its commitment to tackling discrimination and prejudicial language. The Dutch word spook translates as ghost, which all of us know and has been used for 150 years as a synonym for spy. However, apparently, during the Second World War, US military officers used spooky as a derogatory term to describe black pilots. Really, I didn't know that. You didn't know that. None of us know that. And yet the Scottish theatre source says, you know, that they're going to ban the use of the word. No-one has complained about it, but apparently there were worries in the Scottish National Theatre there could be concerns in the future. I mean, what on earth is going on since the BLM madness last year? In the end, there'll be theatre shows where they can't use any words at all because they'll all be banned or have some weird connotation. Now, back to our main story of the day, and the dominant story, indeed, over the course of the last few days since the horrendous events that took place in Lyon Sea on Friday. And I'm joined now by Marc Francois. You were the, you're, you're the MP for the neighbouring constituency, aren't you?
4: Yes, my constituency of Rayleigh and Wickford is yeah. basically just it's across the road.
0: Literally bang next. Yeah. Mark, before we have a chat, let's see you in the House of Commons... Earlier on this afternoon.
4: So David Amos was my best and oldest friend in politics. So I confess that I am hurting terribly, and I hope the House will therefore forgive me if, because of that, my contribution this afternoon is even more incoherent than usual.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Mark, I have to say, I know you. I saw you laying flowers yesterday um, at the site of the. I'm calling it an assassination. I can 't think of any other word that actually fits this, um, and I know this is the first interview that you've given, uh, and that you were very, very close personal friends and this is I mean as you said, this is obviously hurting a lot. Um, there was a degree of self deprecation there that I thought was very British and I enjoyed. Um, would anybody ever have thought David Amos was on a hit list
4: no I I, one thing that colleagues, a lot of colleagues have said to me today is, why him? Mm. He was such an incredibly popular politician. He genuinely was. And I, I think that his spirit came out very well in all the tributes. And um, he was genuinely loved across the house. He just had an irrepressible spirit, a, a great joy de vivre. As I said today, he was one of those people for whom the glass wasn't half empty, it was more three quarters. He's always jolly, long. wasn't he? Oh, even in adversity, know. you know this sort of you know this you know the, the Amos grin mm. was sort of famous across Parliament. He was incredibly uh, thoughtful and considerate for other colleagues, and so he was genuinely, genuinely missed and will be. And, and I hope that that came out very strongly in the House today from all sides. I thought the Prime Minister's tribute was excellent. I must say, I thought Saqib Star was was equally good, and then you know one after the other, the backbenchers. Uh, 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 came in. Uh, he, was just, he was just an
0: exceptional bloke, he he Nigel. No. You know. Mark, I didn't know him like as well as you. Whenever I met him, he was very happy, very jolly. I met him at you know, cricket events and all sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and he had his views on hunting and abortion and the death penalty. Very much an individualistic MP, not a greasy pole timer. No. The question is, we've had that incident. Jay Cox was slightly different. It was in the street. But we had the Stephen Timms incident where he was stabbed in a surgery. We had the Nigel Jones incident where he was stabbed. His assistant was killed. Three knife attacks in 20 years. We can't go on like this, can we? Well, I think we're going to have to look at the security
4: at MP surgeries because it's, it's very obviously a fixed point. Yeah. But, and it's pre-advertised. It, it, by definition. Yeah. But, but it's, a, it's a difficult balance, to be honest, Don, because if we get to the point where, you know, we've got to have bodyguards when we're going shopping in the Bread Island Sainsbury's. You know, if we're in Waitrose... Well, I did. Well, but but, but if that becomes the norm for all... I mean, I think your circumstances were very special, and we know why. But I think if that became the norm for every MP, the risk is then the bad guys start to win. What they want to do is to separate us from our constituents. They want to make us a cast apart. They want us to retreat into an ivory tower. And then by detaching us from our constituents, they begin to undermine the process. So it's a very difficult balance because obviously MPs' families are very concerned about their safety. So somehow we have to get that right. But if we end up going everywhere with armed guards, then the bad guys are starting to win.
0: I don't think so. Well, because even with armed guards, you can still meet constituents, you can still, t- maybe not even armed, yeah. but, but at least somebody with you, you can still meet people. What worries me is Tobias Elwood saying, well, for the time being, we should, do it all, we should do it all on Zoom. And I, and, I, and I find that would be a surrender. Mark, I also want to ask you this. There's been so much dancing around handbags, so much in the media in the last 72 hours. This is all because of the political narrative and political discourse, and we must all be more together. It's got nothing to do with that. This looks like, doesn't it, Islamic terrorism. Well, we were all told in the House today there is a police investigation, so we have to be... But the police married. themselves say that's what they're investigating, and this man was sent to prevent six years ago.
4: Well, if I believe what I read in the papers, Nigel, then it does look as if there may well have been that motive. But, you know, I, I don't have sufficient intelligence to be definitive. But that, that, is, that is indeed how it looks. In the short term, do your plans as an MP change? No. Um, I, I think as best we can, you know, we need, to, we need to carry on. There will obviously be, you know, until we've had David's funeral, yeah. I think things are obviously going to be different and, and I'm sure no-one would decry that. But I, th- I think that, again, we have to strike a balance. We have to carry on doing our job. We just have to be more conscious about these things. But in a sense, we were conscious about them already. Look, uh, the risk of betraying a, a confidence here... I, I discussed this with David... We, we, we used to talk about this. We, we, we were in and out of each other's offices all the time. You know, we're on the same corridor in Parliament. Mm-hmm. So, and I had a system of booked appointments and he normally allowed people to come, for, you know, first come, first serve. And his argument was, if you go to a kind of booked appointment system, you know, that became, you may start to deter people. The irony is, after the pandemic, when he started redoing his surgeries, he did have booked appointments. And this person had booked an appointment. He wasn't even a constituent. I I, I didn't know that, if that's that's the case. I'll I'll take your word for it. But somehow he had booked an appointment and he basically, you know, he waited waited for his moment. So, no, look, we're all struggling with this. We're all struggling with the loss of a great... He's the best bloke I ever knew. It's as simple as that. We're all struggling with that. But we're also trying to work out what's the best thing to do. But one thing I made a particular point about in the House of Commons today is the toxic atmosphere in which we all now have to work because of what happens on social media. And
0: is that because of social media? Yeah, Absolutely.
4: Yeah. Not political discourse, but social no, media. No, no, no. In yeah. some ways, yeah. some people have tried to... Le- it's become so abusive, they tried to legitimise us as targets... And so you, you create an atmosphere where some people think it's acceptable to be absolutely vile to you just because you're elected as an MP. I know. I know. It's awful. And, and of so forgive me, but, I mean, you... One of the reasons I was keen to discuss this with you, because it's in all seriousness, you, you went I've to...
0: I've lived you, it. Right, you know, you know this as well yeah. as anybody, yeah, I've right? lived it. You know, I, I've lived it. I found having security, Mark, never stopped me going to a street market, never stopped me doing public events, never stopped me doing anything... Occasionally, attackers got through—an mm-hmm. egg meal, milkshake, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You were famously milkshake. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. I've had pints thrown over me. Goodness knows what. But what a waste of good beer! But, well, I couldn't agree more. But <laughs> talking pints come <laughs> But, but, I wouldn't have been stabbed seventeen times. Yeah. I might have been stabbed once, but not seventeen times because the intervention would have come, and I yeah. think the moment's come. Mark, finally, just from you, just please attribute to your friend, to David. Well, as
4: I say, he, he was the best bloke I. He was all that was good about politics. He was all that was good about the House of Commons. He was genuinely loved by his constituents. And he showed us what a Member of Parliament can be. He was a tremendous force for good. That's why the the tributes came from all sides of the House, from the PM downwards. I mean, you know, people may think, oh, because the man's been killed, we've all, got, we've all got to say something polite. No. I swear it wasn't like that at all. He was genuinely loved and he'll be dearly missed. And in his memory, we now want David's law so that it will be illegal in future for people to go online under a croak of anonymity and call people everything under the sun. What better tribute to a fine parliamentarian than to change, than to change
0: the law in his memory? Mark, thank you. That was Mark Francois and some very heartfelt, very heartfelt words about the tragic, tragic, tragic death of Sir David last Friday. In a moment, a change of gear. We'll be doing Talking Pints with Aldo Zilli. Now, normally, this is the GB News pub, but I have a feeling that tonight's guest is turning it into something slightly different. Now, tonight's guest is an award-winning celebrity chef, very well-known figure, very successful figure. His name is Aldo Zilli, you've certainly heard of it, and I think that tonight he might have just turned our pub into something more resembling a restaurant. And here he is getting all the food ready, and this is amazing. And thank goodness I've lost all this weight. Aldo... You're really pushing out the boat here. This is completely wonderful. There's um, your knife and fork. Oh, well done. There Thank you. you so much. Okay, I better sit down and. You better talk sit down properly. Uh, let me ask you a question. How does a, how does a young Italian boy of nine from the Adriatic coast um, suddenly become this famous? Go
5: on, tell me how much research. Celebrity you chef,
0: you know, and <laughs> books and TV programs and goodness knows what else. How did it all happen? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I
5: came here by chance for a two-week uh, for a two-week yeah. holiday. Now,
0: what's this, Some prawns. That's prawns. Right. Well, let me dig in a
5: There's bit. There's some there. uh, buffalo mozzarella here. Fantastic. Tomatoes, some arancini. Fantastic. Some penne with mozzarella here. There's a little bit of
0: bread yeah. here. Gets better and better. Look at that. Gets there, better yeah. and better. But no, keep talking. So anyway, it, please. yeah.
5: And then, um, age uh, 17, I was in Germany, homeless. Then I uh, found a job, and then, cut long story short, I met a young lady
0: and she brought me to London. I see. And, uh, so you came I, here for love? I came here for love. I mean, it's the Italians that are supposed to be the romantics, not us. But <laughs> I know. Well, I was romantic because I, I followed the <laughs> all the way here. And, um,
5: to be fair to the young lady, I kind of fell in love with the, the language, the, the people... Uh, you know, I'd been around Europe already, although I was only 19, but I left yep. my family very young. I'm the youngest of nine. Mm.
0: And I left because I was hungry. Uh,
5: but when and, you came here, it
0: 1976, I think it was, that you came. Yeah,
5: I had to go to the. It was like now, right? It was like the Brexit is back. So I had to go to the home uh, office, mm. I had to register, like the Italians have to do now if they want and to. And what's wrong there. with that? Nothing at all. Okay. We, we love it. We love Brexit. You might love Brexit. <laughs> I'm not too sure. <laughs> <laughs> Running my business is a nightmare. But, but nightmare. when you...
0: But when it, well, no, look, you know... At I the mean, moment, it is. Yeah, I mean, there, there's some settling down to do. Yes. But, we, we, you know, we, I mean, I didn't get you on to discuss Brexit particularly. But, but, well, but we can. But we can, and we might at the end. If you're brave. But, <laughs> but, 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 but culture is what interests me. Because when you came here in 1976, mm-hmm. this was a country still... Not recovered from the rationing of two world wars. Right. British food was pretty be awful. Yeah. You know, outside a few central London restaurants, there was very little choice. Provincially yeah. there was almost nothing. You yeah. know, fish and chips was as good as it got, and it could be very good or it could yeah. be awful. Yeah. I mean it must have been a shock to you coming from Italy to see the food culture. It was, was a here. big
5: shock because um, I couldn't even find olive oil. No, I'm uh, sure. It was it was hard to find ingredients, it was hard to find um, good restaurants to go to work. Mm. To, to actually get a job uh, was difficult. Uh, I found a job in a hotel. Yep. And uh, uh, because it was a hotel, of course, the cuisine was English, was British. And uh, we, as staff, got very, good. got very little to eat. Uh, and uh, we got given glasses of milk to drink w- with our dinner, which was a bit weird, but nevertheless, I really liked the country. I li- uh, it was a hotel, it was in the countryside, I really enjoyed it. And then I got fed up. I, wanted, I left my little village to go into a big city. So I wanted to be in London. So London for me was Soho. Soho was Little yep. Italy. Yep. Even then, in those days, yep. there was, I remember, eight restaurants in one street, in Dean Street. And there was Italian delis. There was, I felt at home hmm. when I got to Soho.
0: And that was where... But that that was a tiny part of the UK. Of of the UK, yeah. So the food revolution, is it people like you that have sparked the food revolution? Is it a sort of awakening of the British? Italian food food
5: in those days was very hard to find good food. Outside of London, you know, you you got your chicken Kiev, maybe. if You You were very lucky. Some oily lasagna and some (laughs) cannelloni. You know, pizza was... uh, Touch and go. Uh, you know, the, the, the word was there, but the, the actual dough was not what we yeah. do now. And, you know, it's evolved into this amazing um, thing now that Italian food is everybody's food. There's a family uh, affair. People, you know, we, we do takeaways and deliveries from home. And it's been... But a, you've
0: used lockdown, haven't you? Just sort I've of, used, yeah, yeah. I mean, you kind of quite cleverly yeah. used lockdown because obviously the restaurant business having a terrible time. You sort of... We evolved in... Home lockdown. delivery service and all the rest of it.
5: Yeah, 100%. Casa was born in lockdown and is thriving. Now, we, what we've done to get one better, we've opened our gardens and we've got igloos, so people come, they book them, yep. and they eat outside... And people say to me, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm in your house. And I said to them, no, let me (laughs) remind you, you're not in my house, you're in my garden, in the (laughs) Niglu."
0: You've had an amazing success of what you've done here, and you've made money and you've done incredibly well and got a degree of fame and all the rest of it. When you look back at your native Italy, it's not having such a happy time, is it? No. No, my growing
5: up years were tough. Youngest of nine, Mm. no food... My dad had uh, this amazing idea of selling uh, or moving from a farm that we used to run and moving by the sea. And that's where my love affair for fish had to start because Mm. um, we only had, my mum never had anything to cook then because the farm wasn't there anymore. So she couldn't grow, she used to grow all her own food. And this is why I think I'm loving what I'm doing now because it's brought me back into the countryside. Because I, I have 18 acres of land now and I grow everything I can. So that's, I, I think I've gone back into my yeah. younger but years. But your home country,
0: the north and south of Italy, divided in the most horrendous way.
5: In those um, days it was terrible.
0: The, but the economics today of Italy, not good. No, no, of course not. Not good? Yes. I mean, it's gone... The football is not bad. I mean, the food's still great, the culture's No, the still... football. They're yeah, the football. <laughs> <laughs> and the people are lovely. Yeah. But when I... in the 90s, I did a lot of business in Italy, in, mm-hmm. nor- in, in northern Italy, with big industrial companies, big manufacturers in northern Italy. They're nearly all gone.
5: Yes. And it's, it's, um, it's not getting better. It's got a lot worse through the pandemic, of course. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the good feel factor... This summer, of course, as I said, was the football. Yeah, yeah, uh, was winning medals in the in the, yeah, in the Olympics, and it was w- winning
0: the. I was there for the final Eurovision Song Contest. The reason I the reason I couldn't give you credit for the football is I was there. <laughs> <You're> there. <laughs> I was there. I was here. <laughs> I be- no, I couldn't bear it. You know, no, pedals, I was here in the studio. Pe- penalties. I couldn't bear it. <laughs> I know. You know but- I know. It was. Uh,
5: it was. Uh, it was. Fantastic. <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could say anything else. Always lose on penalties, whatever we do. Yeah. And, uh, what happens next? Um, uh, what happens next... With is, you? Uh, it, it, you know, it's difficult, Nigel,
5: because um, the restaurant industry is not recovering fast enough. Uh, I was a consultant for a lot of restaurants before the yeah. pandemic. I had fantastic jobs, and uh, that's all dried up. Unfortunately, and it doesn't look like it's coming back in a hurry. Staffing has become a huge problem. Uh, we, we chefs uh, are few and far between. But everything
0: is lorry drivers, it's no, chefs. We it's... can't
5: find people in general to work. I can't, I can't even find a KP you know a kitchen porter. So at the moment it's tough, but I'm managing from home to run a business that I started in the pandemic you know, with my lovely wife, Nikki, We're still married after two years of working together. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and great food, um, as I'm... I mean, I'm, it's clearly an advert for Alde's business, really, yeah. but... <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry I, didn't, I didn't... I don't mean to keep bringing <laughs> no, back... No, 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 that's all but, right. You, know, you seem a very happy fellow. I,
5: I don't do sad.
0: You seem naturally. a very happy fellow.
5: Why be sad? You know, I got to where I am and uh, I'm very healthy um, as a person... I, keep, I try and keep eating the right foods and yep. not drink too much alcohol or very little or none at all. And, you know, it's, it's what you want in life. And all I want in life is my three people that are waiting for me at home and my bigger daughter and my grandchild, my grandson. And Is
0: Italian food the best food of the world? Uh,
5: Italian food is... Um, when you say the best food of, uh, uh, in the world... It's the most approachable, and people really love it. And, uh, yes, of course it is.
0: Of course it is. <laughs> that was Aldo Zilli. Italian food is the best in the world. There's no competition. That was really good. OK. <laughs> Just a few comments to end with. Johnny email says... What are your thoughts on the restoration of the death penalty for first-degree murder? A lot of people, having seen the appalling thing that happened in Leonce on Friday, said, let's bring back the death penalty. Um, an older generation that appeals to a younger one, it doesn't. It isn't going to come back. Uh, it just isn't going to happen. Uh, if there was a referendum on it, it wouldn't pass. It's a generational shift and change, even though we're all disgusted and appalled at what happened. Trevor, on email, says, On Dan Woodon's show last week, Anthony Scaramucci said there was zero chance that Donald Trump win in the 2024 US election. Do you agree? Scaramucci knows nothing. You know, he's a sensationalist. He makes money out of being a sensationalist. I actually think Donald Trump will win in 2024. And I tell you what, he's up for the fight. Sleepy Joe is useless. His assistant is even worse the Democrats are making a total mess of absolutely everything. If Trump wants the nomination, it is his. Of that there is no doubt at all. Joe says, according to own statistics, there are no more babies named Nigel in twenty twenty. Does that make me the last great Nigel? Well, it makes me one of the last Nigel's, but there is a great one is entirely subjective.